now for something completely different. Sometimes there are no words. Sometimes we need love, care, support, and affection. We don't have to explain anything. For young people with mental health issues like anxiety, depression, OCD, autism, therapy is often not enough. Paws for Patrick is an organization dedicated to connecting the love of animals to the people who need it the most. We facilitate that connection by assigning the seekers who contact us a wish granter who listens to their story and their needs and helps them acquire an animal or training or documentation so they can have their emotional support animal or ESA in their apartment, dorm, condo, etc. We even have trained therapy dogs and handlers who bring dogs to people who can't have their own. Patrick rarely had the words to express his feelings and his needs, but when he had the love of his dog Cece, he had the strength to persevere. We want to provide every young person who could benefit that kind of love and support. Please check out our website at pauseforpatrick.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a need, reach out. If you want to help become a volunteer, fill out the form on our website. If you can donate, great, but please at least spread the word so we can replace the suffering and silence that many people do with the smiles and security that only the love of an animal can bring. Ahoy, and welcome back to the Meglerverse, where I, Dan Megler, social worker and life enthusiast, pull back the curtain on mental health issues and try to help answer people's questions and talk through dilemmas that some of my clients and uh, former clients and whatnot have been facing. This is the Not Allowed to Die podcast, because here you're allowed to do whatever it takes to make it through this world. The only rule I have is that you're not allowed to die. If you have a question or a topic for the podcast, feel free to email me at daniel.makler, that's M-A-I-G-L-E-R, at L-I-V-E dot com. And uh, I'm hoping that soon I'm going to figure out the technology and record some interviews to make this a little bit less boring for all of you, just listening to me drone on and on. So again, I welcome your feedback, your questions, and your ideas. And again, also, if you have great guests or people that you just think questions about mental health that you want me to find out more from some experts rather than just me pontificating from my experience, please let me know. So the other day I was speaking to a former client and she's now listening to the podcast, so she'll probably hear this. And she was saying, maybe you should do a topic of grief in relationships because we're all familiar with the idea of grief when we lose someone to death. But There's a much more common experience of grief is when things change, things end. And we all experience grief, not just when someone dies, but when someone moves away, when a relationship ends, when we leave a job. And we still go through those same stages of grief. Many people are familiar with the five stages of grief, denial, bargaining, depression, anger, and acceptance. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she came up with those stages of grief really more as stages of acceptance of dying. She was one of the first people to work with people who were dying and kind of talk to them and find out more what they were feeling because many people just wanted to avoid them or had assumptions about what those people were feeling. But then it was realized by her and other people that she was working with that these did not just apply to the people who were dying themselves, but to the rest of us who were going through a loss and trying to put that loss into a context. So grieving for a relationship, and particularly a romantic relationship, is so much more challenging than grieving for a death. Why? Well, that's pretty obvious. Because when the person is dead, we 
it's over. So whether we like it or not, we have to move forward. But how many of us have, know someone or have experienced ourselves a relationship where it ended, but then we got back together? We hear about the people who dated when they were 15 and 16, and then they both went off to college and married other people, and then 47 years later, they found each other and got back together. So while that is a beautiful story and a thought, it's also detrimental to those people who are trying to get over a relationship and really move forward because they're thinking, could I be one of those people? Did I, did I leave something behind that still had some potential? So that first stage of grieving is denial. So, and that, again, when we, when a relationship ends, that's the hardest one to get through. Is this relationship really over? How do I know? How do I know when I can just safely move on and try dating someone different? The, exp- the idea that I give to most of my clients who are in that place is don't immediately try dating new people, but you have to imagine yourself as like that neon open sign that you'll see in a restaurant and that you've clicked the open light on. And not necessarily open to new relate- romantic relationships, but that you're just open to new people and connecting with them. And then eventually, when we're letting people into our lives, we might find the person that's right romantically. It might be a good idea for us not to have a new romantic connection for a while so that we don't have that rebound effect. So, and again, that will, it, it makes it a little bit easier to start to move on when we're, we're leaving the door open in case someone does come back or the right circumstances change. If we're saying, okay, I'm not necessarily closing my mind out to this, but it's okay for me to make a new friend. It's okay for me to talk to people who I might even be attracted to or people who have sisters, brothers, whoever that I might be attracted to and be curious about people. And also, let me get into the things that make me feel good about me. Let me start because boredom is so dangerous. It's when we get bored that we're like, I wonder what that person's doing right now. (laughs) But when we're really excited about our own life and the things that we're doing, we're less likely to go down that internet rabbit hole of stalking, you know, where they're living now or what they've been posting. So we have to really get encouraged and excited about our pottery class, our our crocheting, whatever it is, that, that, that new video game, whatever that is. So denial and bargaining. So what is bargaining? Well, when we talk about a death, bargaining is, I should have spent more time with that person. It's not saying, God, please, I'll do anything to just, if you can give me this person back, although sometimes we are saying that, but it's more about how can I protect myself from this kind of pain in the future? How can I blame myself for the ending, for the cause of this pain? And why do we want to blame ourselves? Well, simple, because that would allow us to be in control of it. If I just never ask him why he was out playing poker with his friends till two in the morning, then he won't break up with me. So the next person I date, you know, if I'm just not too naggy or if I'm just not too clingy or needy, then this kind of thing won't happen again. Really? No, not so much. When relationships end, it's never just because of one side. I once heard someone describe relationships as like a piece of art that we're both making together. And it takes two people to want to do that, or I like the idea of growing a garden together. So that's the age of bargaining. When we say, why am I doing that? Well, we're doing it because we want to feel safe and not continue to feel that way. Depression, that one's pretty simple. So <laughs> denial, bargaining, depression, you know, and anger. We, we know why we're experiencing these things. And let's be thankful in a way that we are. 
if we were never, if we just left relationships and moved right on again without being depressed, without being sad about it, how much do we really invest? How much do we really care? All feelings have a function. And I'll talk more about this on another podcast, but I'll touch on it briefly here. Sadness, the emotional, the physical equivalent of sadness is swelling. So if I am running and I roll my ankle, it hurts physically, yes. But in addition to hurting, it also swells up. Well, why? Well, how many of us know someone or are that person ourselves who, if it just hurt, they would keep on running? The swelling is there to go like an airbag, poof. You know, now you can't run. Now you have to change and pay attention to me. You can't just push through your pain. So that's what swelling is there for. And the same thing for sadness. That sadness, that depression is there to tell you, hey, dummy, slow down. Something important happened here. Don't just rush on into a new relationship. Don't just rush on. Realize, give yourself some time. And then if you don't want to, like, if we want the swelling to go down, well, we put some ice on it. We elevate, you know, take some ibuprofen. If we want the sadness to go down, well, then we talk to friends. We eat some ice cream. We, you know, listen to sad music. And that helps reduce the level of inflammation in our sadness. And often we trade sadness for anger. So, again, that's anger is physical equivalent is pain. We feel pain to let us know when something needs to change. And we feel anger because we're tired of just blaming ourselves and we're wanting to move forward. And anger gives us a level of energy to say, okay, it's time to get up off our duff and move forward a little bit. So I can be angry with that person for why things ended. Instead of just the bargaining and blaming myself, let me blame him, let me blame her, let me blame them, whatever that thing is. And so I'm gonna get angry because that might give me the energy to go out and try dating again. Um, to to get out of the house and go out with my friends because I'm not going to let that person dictate things. And friends will often <laughs> pile on our acts and try to, to encourage that anger, to inspire. You're better than that person anyway. You don't need them. You know, so let's pump up the anger a little bit. And hey, if it works to get you moving, again, anger's function is to help to be a catalyst for change. So den- bar- denial, bargaining, depression, anger, acceptance. Acceptance of saying, I learned something here, you know, and it's it's over and now I can potentially move forward. That maybe it's good that it wasn't uh, continuing on forever. Maybe I really wasn't that good a fit for this person. And it's a little bit of an oasis of calm. All of these five stages, the denial, depression, anger, acceptance, we don't experience them like the hands on a clock, like we move from one to two. And then, you know, it's more like a spiral notebook with these little spirals, denial, depression, anger, acceptance, denial, depression, anger, acceptance. And hopefully that time period and acceptance gets longer. Recently, David Kessler uh, wrote a book called Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. And he worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross He was a younger researcher who helped uh, co-author on death and dying with her and on grief and grieving, um, introducing these stages of grief. And so he gives us the sixth stage. And I think it's so crucial and important in saying for any grief that we experience, again, the loss, the ending of a job, the ending of uh, like moving. I have so many of my high school students that I work with who are kind of grieving the ending of high school and moving on into college. And nobody wants to hear about that. Everyone wants people to be so excited about what's next. But it's kind of scary. It's like being an astronaut. You're at the top of that rocket and, 
yeah, you want to go, but you're afraid that what's underneath you could explode. And am I really ready for this? And there's no way to really know what we're ready for until we experience it. And for most people, college is better, but it's okay to grieve the ending of something. Many people grieve the moving out of their the home if they grew up in and only had one or two moves in their childhood. Okay, that, that changing. So now there isn't an inherent meaning in it, what some people will say, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or, you know, that it's all for the best. Voltaire, famously in Candide, lampooned that idea that everything is for the best. So I don't believe that everything is for the best, but I do believe we can make the best of everything. But for us to be able to make the best of everything and take this suffering, this pain, and turn it into a lesson, now we need to put some meaning onto it. We need to say, what did I learn about myself from this experience? And what can I take going forward? And just like in every grade, you know, I really, my first grade teacher, Miss Bronsdorf, I had uh, dysgraphia as a child, meaning it was just very, very challenging to get my hands to do what my brain wanted them to do, particularly with regard to writing. And school naturally was overwhelming and anxious, anxiety producing, especially at first, because even though I knew the answers, I couldn't make my fingers write what I was expected to write. And I'll never forget when she crossed out half of the homework problems and said, you only have to do this half of the page and the level of relief I felt. Now, when first grade ended, yeah, that was sad, but I was ready to move on. I had learned what there was to learn there. And fortunately, some of the lessons came with, and, you know, she talked to the next grade, Mrs. Butcher, the next year's teacher, and I was, that, that learning came with me of, hey, this student has this issue, so we can move on to a new relationship, a new way of learning, a new experience. I got back from an amazing vacation in Maine. I will probably never return to Maine. Maybe I will, but it was unbelievable. But just because I'm not going to go back there and you know, buy a house in Maine, it doesn't mean it wasn't worthwhile. So the, every relationship I had from you know, the first girl I quote, unquote, dated in sixth grade and holding hands in a movie theater as far as it went. But I think about to this day, and I might I think I probably spend more time thinking about old relationships than the average person does because I work with teens. And so putting myself back into their life stages. But I think for almost everyone, those early relationships are the building blocks of who we're becoming and what we want from ourselves in relationships. So this former student client that I was talking to the other day, she said, you know, does he still, she got out of a long and intense and really important relationship for her where she had amazing chemistry with a guy the kind of chemistry that she hasn't found in other relationships in her life. She's had other important relationships, but this one was really special. And they knew they needed to move apart for a while, but they promised that they would get at least back in touch with each other and talk things through and and see if they can maybe give it another try. And he never came back around again. He never reached out and had contact. And she wonders, a year and a half, two years later, does he think about me? Does he miss me the way I miss what we had? And why doesn't he? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with me? And it's been hard for her to move forward. She's tried dating other people, but it's hard to find that kind of special level of chemistry. She's not wrong to ask those questions. She's not foolish to still be grieving this. So I talked about another podcast. Dante Alighieri only saw Beatrice the three times in his life and was in love with her forever. I remember working with a student who 
she had a crush on a boy in eighth grade, and he, they kind of both liked each other, and all through high school, they they danced around the idea of dating. And even so though they never dated, she still felt grief about how the relationship that hadn't happened. And so it's totally okay to be devastated about a relationship that never actually occurred. And so much more so about a relationship which did occur. But as we discussed before, it's not about what the person could do. It's not about what the person might be feeling or thinking. It's about who's showing up to be a partner in your life and what are they bringing on a daily basis. That idea of how much potential that they may have and the the falling in love with the potential of that chemistry, it's alluring. But it's, it's saying for we deserve the person who's going to show up and show up with care and concern every day. I have not watched many episodes of Grey's Anatomy, but I recall one where this doctor was treating a man who was an Orthodox Jew who was going to have an arranged marriage. And the doctor was saying, I just don't know how you could do that. Um, and the man with, who was going to have the arranged marriage, he said, well, you know, are you married doctor? And he said, yes, I'm married three times now. And he's like, well, on your wedding day, did you look at your wife and say, I've never loved her more? And you expected that was going to be like the most you'd ever love. You could never love someone more than that. And he said, absolutely. And the man who was going to have the arranged marriage said, on my wedding day, I think this is the beginning. I'm going to love her more every day from this point forward. And even though it's just a fictional show, this that idea that we can grow in love if we have appropriate partnership, if we have the person who is going to have the similar values to us and we view our relationship as a partnership for something that we both believe in, then we can grow and grow in that. But in our society today, typically we say we need passion and chemistry first. And if that's not there, then hopefully we can turn that person into a partner. And I see both sides of that. But I, I realize that you know, one of the main reasons why these arranged marriages tend to last longer, it's not just because, well, they're in a culture and a society which frowns on divorce. It's also because of the expectations that they have going in. So how do we grieve appropriately for a relationship? Step one is acknowledge that it's important. Stop beating ourselves up for having feelings. Say, I'm going to feel these things. And when our friends get sick of hearing about it, we have to maybe write things out. Tell the story, make it a narrative, and really let's focus on what is the meaning that lasts that sixth stage of grief? How can I find meaning in this relationship Put the suffering and point into context. We want to never fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy is the idea that once I've already put energy and effort in, I should keep doing that because I, you know, I don't want to walk away from what I've already provided. So if I have a car that's worth two thousand dollars, I just got new tires for it a year ago, you know, and they're they're really in good shape. But now I find out that the transmission is shot. It's going to cost another. Eight hundred to a thousand dollars to get it fixed. I need to make the best decision for me going forward. If that means getting rid of this car, but oh man, but I just spent those all that money on those tires. Let the tires go. They're sunk cost. It's over. When a relationship ends, I was there for that person. I was there for them all through college and helped them get through law school or did whatever else. That's over. And hopefully, we got something from that. The question is now, 
what's the best decision for you and what meaning can, lessons can you take and move forward with. Allow it to be hard. Allow yourself to feel that sadness. Don't ignore the swelling, but do what it takes to reduce it. Harness the anger appropriately, but let's not just make ourselves into a victim or overly focus on that other person. Let's not have revenge sex with someone's best friend just because we were angry and we want to let's let's focus on what's actually going to make me healthier from this point forward. Can I act like the person that I want to become? And the more that we're doing that, the more we're going to draw people in and find the right partner in the right relationship. And perhaps this person who we're moving away from will eventually turn out to be that. Okay, then what can I do at this moment to be as ready for that, to be the, the healthy half of the partnership that I want to be? So when that person, if they are to come back into my life, I'm ready for it. So, so those are some thoughts on grieving on a relationship. Thank you for listening today. Remember, if you have questions, email me at daniel.makler at live.com and do whatever it takes to get you through this world. And remember, you're just not allowed to die.